0: Welcome to the Trend Detection Podcast, powered by Sensai, an industry leader in using AI to drive scalable and sustainable asset performance and reliability. For this three-part series, I'm joined by Andy Gailey, founder of Uptime Consultant Limited, who provide a holistic approach to asset care and maintenance management. In the second episode of this series, we discuss the key benefits of implementing predictive maintenance technology and how to fit this within your broader maintenance strategy. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, and I just wanted to say about the bathtub effect, because another thing, so, I mean, we we talk about a lot about unplanned downtime, but there's obviously, there's so many other benefits, it, just talking from a predictive maintenance perspective, but it's it's actually the incremental improvements that you can make, so it's actually not just about preventing failure, but, but it's actually about making incremental, so there's early signs where you can just make tweaks to keep machines, for example, running efficiently, so they're, you know so it's because if a machine's not running as efficient it's wasting more energy etc but if it's if you make those little tweaks those early warning signs we said earlier yeah. um then you can keep machines running at a more efficient pace so are, th- are those sort of benefits starting to be recognized i guess in particular from technology or condition monitoring standpoint
1: yeah well, i do i do see some predictive efforts Condition-based maintenance, whereby people are carrying out something that they've been employed to do and they end up with a lot of information, but no action. And the thing is, is that if the people I train to start out as predictive engineers or proactive engineers, well, so you've got to concentrate on the output. All of the tools that we use are just tools. They're just tools that accentuate one of our natural senses. So, thermography allows us to see energy emitted in a colour map so we can understand where the energy uh, hotspots, hotspots in commas, are. Um, ultrasound allows us to hear uh, waveforms that take place outside of our natural hearing. Through heterodyning, so we can then we can then listen to, for instance, a bearing pack with the grease in through headphones and monitor what that sounds like. And actually, you can you if you if you're trained at this, you can actually identify whether there's too much or too little grease, whether there's um, impacts occurring, and if you understand uh, rotational speed and the uh, sub-synchronous rotational speed that you'll find damage at then you can do things with your all natural senses with a tool and that's what I did for nine years so I used all of these tools and brought them together but the idea of me using those tools wasn't just to use the tools it was to make an impact on the business it was to make the availability uh flat line uh, and I was talking just this about to somebody that just this morning that when we talked about Large ovens. When I first started, there was repeated failures of oven bearings, they were very expensive to uh, to repair and act, act interact with uh, because they were very hot. They had to wait actually uh, a couple of hours for them to cool down before you could go near them. And it was a lubrication problem, and we identified the lubrication problem through acoustic commission. So we used a tool of acoustic commission to understand it was the lubricant that was the issue. So where we thought there was planned maintenance being carried out, it actually was being ticked off and wasn't being carried out. So the people either didn't put the grease in, or they couldn't find a gun, or they ran out of maintenance time, so they timed it out, or they actually found a grease gun with an incompatible grease in, and they just put that in. Because if you haven't trained anybody in lubrication, people think that all grease is just grease, and all oil is just oil. Uh, And if you get an incompatibility incompatibility between greases, you end up like we did with actual chalk inside the bearing pack, because they'd reacted together, they'd formed a compacted hard white uh, chalk-like substance, it was the aluminium complex that had dried out, uh, because it was interacting with a semi-synthetic grease. So the thing is, you then put put in systems to take that out so it never happens again. So I then, even though my job was as the proactive predictive engineer, I then went into the CMMS system and took out the lubrication um, approach at a timed interval for what they, what they were doing on the shop floor. And I owned it. So I owned that and would only lubricate with the right lubricant on condition. So if the acoustic commission told me it was it needed lubrication, lubricate it and actually monitor it in real time to see that impact level reduce as we did the greasing and then do that just on a seven day cycle. Once we were um, confident that we'd, we'd 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 got the flat line that we needed, the equipment was, we weren't actually going there seven days and not doing any greasing, we put that into flat like to 14 days. So straight away you start the savings go. You put the, we put the um, unplanned downtime to zero over two years, from in the high teens. We stopped using as much lubricant as being booked out. We did it on condition, so we only lubricated when it was required. So therefore, all the planned aspect that cost hours, that was a saving. So we took that as a saving. And the thing is, is what the proactive Predictor engineer should. Gather all that information together, because you will be asked, or you should be asked, by your operations manager and plant manager how much you've saved within uh, a period, or a quarter, or an annum, and that's where you get the people find it hard to get benefit out of lubrication practices. But if you tie them with predictive technology, there's there's masses of gain to be made out of putting in the right lubrication. Uh, at the right time and in the right, right quantity. And most lubrication um rotating failures come from lubrication. And it's either over or under lubrication or no lubrication.
0: Actually that um, well, what what you've explained there is really interesting, Andy, because we've interviewed one of our well, I'm sorry, I've interviewed one of our um customers in the in the US and they they refer to predictive maintenance technology is like another tool in the toolbox. So every day, uh, like a theoretical toolbox, and then they'll assess the situation and decide, oh, I need to use, apply this technology or this, you know, this approach or this approach, which I, I always like that analogy. I repeat that quite a lot, which I think is sort of reflective in yeah, what, you're, in what you're saying. What,
1: that's what the thing is, is people should, should look at um, a maintenance strategy as an overarching piece of work. And it includes people. It includes resources, things like inventory. this has got to be in control. So one of the things that I wrote about a couple of years ago, I've just revisited it, is if you've got a, gr- a great proactive predictive strategy in place and you can pick up where a bearing is in production today that there's a window in seven days' time where there's a planned outage to do with, say, a flavour change or a product change. And you can put somebody against that With a part to change out within an hour, then that's a a massive saving because you've avoided an unplanned downtime in the future. You've also that person being employed from a proactive point of view has has the spare in hand and understands what they've got to do. They're prepared. They're waiting for the line to go down. They're literally like a cold spring waiting for it. The problem is a lot of people do is they do all the great work ahead but they don't look at the inventory. And if you do that great work ahead and then go, oh, well, we haven't got a bearing in stock because we haven't covered our angle and it's on 14 days lead time, that's where you get, even though you do all the good work, you can be tripped up and still end up with the unplanned downtime because you haven't covered the inventory level. Mm -hmm. You haven't covered the full picture. So it's important that people look at predictive and proactive things that we do as part of the bigger picture it's um and that's that includes obviously people's knowledge and their training their understanding of the failure modes of the equipment uh, their understanders say even proper mounting the bearings it's amazing how many engineers in maintenance that haven't had a basic course on how to fit a bearing properly without damaging it no no uh, so yeah, your client's right. It should be seen as a tool that is used in a range of tools to get to uh, a place in the future that you, that you wanted, that you planned for.
0: Exactly, exactly. And um, and speaking of the future and technology, I know we had a conversation just before we sort of came on the <laughs> the podcast about Industry Four Point Zero and. And maybe that's not exactly your specialist area, but of course you've talked to customers who are either investing, discussed in in that area. So it'd be interesting, first of all, to get your definition of Industry 4.0 because I think there's a lot of differing, and I've certainly heard it at different events and stuff about different approaches and views yeah. on it. So it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so if you look at, if you look at the phrase Industry 4.0, 4.0, it was actually coined uh, 2011, and it, I've again I've, I've googled this in very various places. It, it came about from the German government, so it was uh, a thing that was banded around the uh, WEF, which is an unusual organisation. We're going to look at the WEF, an electric bureaucrat, bureaucrats. So they came up with this this idea of Industry 4.0, and then they made a, they they came up with the story of well we started a Industry one, where we discovered oil and we made steam trains and Brunel and all of the very things that were pre probably the Victorian era. And then we came into the Victorian era. That was industry 2.0 where by um, say Ford came along with automation. Um, uh, Things were still very, very early days in engineering and manufacturing things. and then we could probably they could probably then spin forward to probably post Second World War. A lot of the discoveries were a lot of discoveries were made during the Second World War purely through carrying out um, mass killing of people, where they came up with um, things like transistors. Um, you know, so you went into the Second World War with valves and came out with transistors. So they had this time frame of this is what happened, and then we're you know 2011. Somebody said we're heading to or in. Industry 4.0, and uh, they saw it as connecting technologies um, through. Uh, originally, you see, the easy way to do it is through consumer technology. So that's where, that's where all the hits have been made, really. So, you know, the iPhone and um, apps on your iPhone and things like that. And things start there, and then they tend to migrate to the industrial space. So it's been for, I would say probably since 2015-ish, it's been that kind of push to let's get this into the industrial sector because we can see if there's benefits of having people um, uh, using um, IoT devices in you know in, in the real world, you know in the everyday, then surely there's benefits from it being IIoT, so industrial Internet of Things, and there's obviously lots of people that make their money through, um, through quoting in industry 4.0 or IIoT. And a lot of them that I've seen have promised things that will be beneficial in the future. And when you go me as a practical engineer, when I go and look at some of the benefits, I can't see that, um, some of them approach reality. Um, and I, I was looking when I started uptime consulting up, I, I had a business plan. And the business plan was to was probably in, in thirds, really, or quarters. I was going to spend a third or a quarter of my time working for clients. So actually going on site to client and training their people and uh, trying to get them to think the same way as I think, because that's what I'm turned on by. And then I was going to use um, another piece. I wanted to go online and tra- train people for free online So give things away. Uh, Because that interests me and I can afford to do it, which was good. And then the other part, I wanted to always look to the future and see how uh, the proactive, predictive things I was doing in 2005 could be extrapolated and automated. And when I spoke to the co founders of Sensei back in uh, probably 2015 16, um, I was interested in sensei because they were in the predictive space and it was industrial. So these are two things that I'm interested in. And they were talking of automating what I did as a manual subject. So it's something that I dreamt about in 2005. When you're on a 12 hour shift and you're going out and taking 300 acoustic emission readings and two oil samples and a whole lot of other. uh, Readings that come out of assets. And then try to extrapolate and find out what 3% of that makes any sense to action. That becomes a long and arduous task. Fortunately for me, it interested me that much that I was just turned on by it. And I I understood over time as well that if you use some Pareto, you could drive towards the 20% of assets who are causing you 80% of your headache. And... Maybe let some of the low-line stuff go into Reactive. Maybe just check it every couple of months. But what I had my head around was if I could if I could take um, 2,000 readings every 12 hours but not have to physically leave my office and walk around every asset in the plant and then bring it back and download it into a database and then look at either trigger points or things that I'd found of interest when I walked around, um, that would be a really great benefit because then you could look at hundreds or thousands of assets over different locations in the world as well. So you could compare a robot in North America with a robot in Spain of the same type, in you know, and look at the conditions that they're running and gain a lot of information out of that. That obviously using things that have become prevalent over the last ten years. Um, some artificial intelligence, really machine learning, um, to use those tools, and again, they're just tools, those tools that our brains um, aren't very good at. So our, our brains are an amazing tool because we can. I can think of 10 different things at the same time when I'm visiting an asset. And I can also at the same time speak to a human that's running that asset for 12 hours and ask them their opinion of what's happening. And I can put all that information together in my computer and come up with do I need to take action or do I not? And really, that was my job, for the industry I worked in. Is this important enough to take action or can I move on? Um, so, get yeah, go back, industry 4.0, go back to 2011. It was a construct. It was. Um, it's similar to AI being overused. AI, everything. I've I've actually collected some screenshots of uh, electric toothbrush that is AI, artificial intelligence enabled, and things like that. Yeah. AI has been overused. Really, it's machine learning. It's a bit of maths. Um, and the same way, a lot of people jumped on the industry four point zero. Um, name, and when you look at it, you go, "Well, this, well, well, how is, how is, does this apply to a connected technology in any way?" And when you look at it, it doesn't. It's just that people have very little understanding and they've used it as a tool to uh, PR their product.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And actually, I was at an event last year in Germany, and there was actually a, a, a talk or discussion about Industry Five. And I thought, well, if you If you haven't even fully seen, you know, covered the landscape of Industry 4.0, if that's still developing, which I guess it probably is, that we shouldn't be talking about things like that yet. You know, not for another 10, 15
1: years. I think I mentioned it um, before we started, that uh, PDM, predictive maintenance, again, is a little bit of a misnomer. And it's one that I, I used early on, in my career when I was looking at maintenance and predictive and proactive. And it's something I realized when I thought about, it, I thought, this isn't, there's nothing crystal ball about this. This isn't really predictive. This is the earliest sign of incipient, incipient failure. It's actually the first reactive. It's an early reactive event. Um, so we, we look for a signature in a piece of plant and where it should be running. And then we monitor that and then we try and look for a signal, maybe up, maybe down, but a signal that may trend over time that gives us more information about what path that asset or that component is on. It's very, very simple. People try to overcomplicate it. It's not. It's very, very simple. And If you can extrapolate that, spread it over many assets, you then have a more enlightened workforce that can be targeted at those 20% that I talked about that take 80% of all your maintenance uh, inputs. And over time, so over time what I did, I looked at nearly everything in the process area, the factory I worked in. And over time, after a couple of years, I pared it back. I thought, actually, um, this asset has has proven to be very, very uh, reliable over 18 months. I know we could be, looking at something another six months. But there's redundancy built in. I don't really need to look at it every 30 days. Let's go look at it every 180 days, say. Um, and and that worked in the same with oil sampling, and which is a predictive type of methodology, oil sampling and oil monitoring in gearboxes. So when I started, it was 12-month cycle, no no debate. You we were going to change our 40 litres of Food grade oil, very expensive uh, operation. Um, I started, I started doing monthly oil samples and I trended over time the health of that oil pack. And they also looked at other things that were telling me what's going on inside the asset. Uh, And then we pushed the oil changes out to three, four, five years based on condition. So that saves a hell of a lot of um, plan time. The oil samples turn out about 20 pounds each per month. We push that out then to kind of two, three month samples, because again, it, it wasn't proving beneficial. Um, so it's a, it's a learning phase within, if you're within a plant and doing it in one plant, it's a learning phase, learning about your assets, getting some knowledge about how things fails looking at the history, talking to your operators, understanding what operations require.
0: So, that was the second part of our series looking at the key maintenance challenges manufacturers are facing. I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe via your favourite podcast provider if you'd like to be notified about future episodes, and it would mean a lot if you could let us know your feedback by leaving us a review. You can find out more about how Sensei can reduce unplanned downtime and contribute towards improved sustainability within your manufacturing plants. By visiting sensei.io. Thanks a lot for listening.